0: to Three Women, Three Ways. I'm your host, Heather Stark. I always start the show by saying we talk about difficult topics. I think that although there's an undercurrent of a difficult topic with our, our guest today, um, it's also a very positive topic because uh, we're talking about an organization that has tackled one of the worst problems that I see when we're talking about domestic violence situations.
1: Catherine Campbell,
0: welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Heather.
0: Catherine is the executive director at California Protective Parent Association. Now, I have to say, I've been hearing about the California Protective Parent Association for many years. I've always been impressed with what I hear about it. We've had a couple of people who've been involved on the show talking about other topics, but today I want to talk about the California Protective Parent Association. And uh, Catherine is a protective parent with a marketing and communications background at Disney and a few other great huge companies, and so she certainly has her chops about her. And she's been able to see the problems in the family court system and help raise awareness to those problems and bring change. Tell me, Catherine, how did the California Protective Parent Association start, and what does it do?
1: Well, we started just over 20 years ago, about 22 years ago, when a group of women were sitting on a park bench in 1995 and they realized that children were being lost lost in the system and not being allowed to stay with a protective parent and that group what became known as a movement of mothers of lost children really started to do marches and protests much like the madres de la plaza de mayo And they decided when these children were in Argentina were disappearing, that these women gathered together. So based on that movement, they came together and said, we need need awareness of this problem, that children are being lost, taken from protective parents. At that time, someone decided to say, why don't you start a nonprofit? And Connie Valentine and Karen Anderson said, okay, let's do this. And they just started because Valentine
0: of has been on the show in in the past. So uh, we were delighted to have her here. But I I can't remember what topic we were we were she was addressing. Um, so you know well, the show was probably the, the same with one. Yeah. <laughs> well, we didn't do it specifically. We did that. Uh, you know, it was that um, that the same topic, but we didn't talk particularly about the organization. Um, and uh, we, we we were talking more about the issue. So.
1: Right. Well, the issue is what the organization is based on. There was one case they heard of where a boy had over a dozen substantiated sexual abuse CPS reports, and they still gave custody to the father. And we thought, how could this be possible? And from that case stemmed California Protective Parents Association.
0: You know, I tell this story all the time, Catherine, and and people don't don't understand unless they've been there. I had I put out a call a couple of years ago. I wanted to have a family court judge on my show, so I put out a call around the country because our show is not just California or Washington; it's all around the country. And I said, I want a judge, a family court judge who can speak knowledgeably about these issues. And after a couple of referrals, I was finally referred to this judge out of uh, Colorado as a person who really gets it, she understands these issues. And I called her. She was gracious, and uh, she allowed me to interview her. Unfortunately, as I was talking to her after the show, I asked her, I said, please tell me what goes on in a family court judge's mind when two people are standing in front of you and – one of them has documented domestic violence in the background and one does not. And they're fighting over custody of the kids. What goes through a family court judge's mind when he or she awards those kids to the one with the domestic violence? And she said, well, you have to understand you've got two people ahead in front of you. One who's frantic and frazzled and barely coherent. And you've got another one who has it all together. He's in charge. And so if the domestic violence isn't that bad, we're going to give the kid kids to the, the, the one who's got it together. And I thought, oh, my God, this woman does not understand anything. Is that still going on, and is that what you're talking about when you're talking about these kinds of cases?
1: That's exactly what's going on, Heather. We realize that without accountability and without proper training, people are not... Ruling correctly in these cases. And what we're seeing is uh, the ACE, store, ACE scores go up. The ACE mm-hmm. scores are the adverse childhood experiences. Mm-hmm. We are seeing the effects of those from everything from depression to school dropout, suicide, um, teenage pregnancy. And then, of course, the ACEs lead to so much in adulthood. Uh, if you have four. ACEs when you're a child, even if you get out of your situation, you end up really being a part of that in you. If you don't process it correctly, it stays in you and you have, you're twice as likely to have cancer or a heart attack. If you have six of these ACEs, you are going to lose 20 years off your life. It's pretty amazing. Um, what we're seeing, and you mentioned two things that I think are important. Is this still happening, what's happening to our children, and then the judges. Um, We realize that there's not accountability with the judges in California, and judges really across the nation. uh, Each state does it differently. Some are appointed, some are elected, and in California, once you're elected, really no one runs against you, and if no one's running against you, you don't even end up on the ballot again. So we have a judge currently on the bench in California who sent a child to live with the abusive father and no one believed the mother because just like you said, she didn't come across as strong as the man, as the father. And she had gone through domestic violence and she she definitely needed care. She needed some help because she had been really put through the ringer with this guy. And now the daughter was going to be subjected to that. And they gave the dad the custody. There were issues with drugs. And he ended up, um, sadly, uh, drugging her, raping her, recording it. And then he, I think it was maybe, I'm, I'm forgetting the time frame, but I think it was within three months of her being there, she went missing. And he said, oh, she's a runaway. You know how she is. And, and it was just terrible. No one really went looking for her. This was just the high-conflict family. No one really wanted to pay attention. And she went missing. And nearly three years later, a new detective came on the case of this missing child and said, you know, I'm going to take a dog to where, to where that dad used to live. Cause he had moved to Los Angeles from the Bay area and he went to that home and with just beyond the patio, the dog found the daughter buried and at his trial, his murder trial, they were able, they had to take his hard drive to Quantico and it took them over, I think over five months to find all the data, hundreds of thousands of images, not just of the daughter But what we found is these people are using their own children for pornography child pornography and to share so they can receive more videos themselves and this case that was known this judge is still on the bench who put this girl with her father and so these are the type of cases you're talking about that the mother seems as if she's exhausted and she's she seems a little more frazzled maybe because she's in such trauma that she's trying to protect her children and I've realized that even if the woman comes across the mother comes across as very well organized they still put the children with the father and we have done studies with um, CPPA California Protective Parents Association and We show that eighty-five percent of the time in California, if you report abuse of your child in court by the other parent, you have an eighty-five percent chance of losing custody with sexual abuse. And that's
0: Joan Meyer's study that came up with that, and um, she's been on the show talking about that study as well.
1: So we right well, this was a study done before Joan did that.
0: Oh, really. Um, well, Jones And we love did, that uh, Joan did that because,
1: it, yeah, it validates what we've been seeing. And that's the first empirical data. Uh, the data that we have was done by Geraldine Staley. And it was, it, it is amazing to see this work. And people don't understand the numbers until they hear the stories. Well, we realized that the judges were not being held accountable we've taken some advocates with us to see the attorney general of California and, and we had a meeting with their office and luckily we were sitting in there with a whistleblower judge and they said, well, these cases are just he said, she said, aren't they? And we were so grateful to have Deanne Salcedo, honorable Deanne Salcedo, who's now retired. And she retired because she became a whistleblower and knew she couldn't keep her job as a judge. Um, But she is still doing family law down in the San Diego area, and she said to them, no, this is what they teach you. They teach you high conflict. Usually mothers will come in here and claim abuse to get back, revenge. And she Mm -hmm. has seen that firsthand. And when judges do this and they're not held accountable, uh, the way you hold a judge accountable in California is you can report them to the Commission on Judicial Performance. This commission is almost 60 years old. They get about 5000 uh, excuse me, $5 million a year from the legislation, from the legislature, and they dismiss most of the cases. So if you make a complaint, they, 90% of the cases were just receiving a form letter saying this doesn't qualify. And of those 10% they looked at, only 2% were being disciplined. The majority of those were private disciplines. And most of the ones that we saw that were being disciplined were they had been arrested for drunk driving or some, for some other reason that was very blatant. So the family court advocates, uh, we went with Kathleen Russell with Center for Judicial Excellence. We went to the legislature and said we would like an audit. Like we don't want you to fund this organization, this this group, that if they're not doing their job. And we want you to see how they're doing a job. We want an audit. We finally were able to get an audit on the Commission on Judicial Performance. And wow. that audit oh, who, did, who did the audit? The California State Auditor. Okay. So okay. the so we we had to go and request the audit from the legislation. And uh, they were able – yeah, so it, they had never been audited. So we went to them and said, please, to the JLAC committee, please um, approve this audit. Once it was approved, the Commission on Judicial Performance actually sued our state auditor. These are stu- two state entities now being suing each other, or the one is suing. The auditor saying our complaints it, yeah. are – uh, yeah, yeah. so they basically sued the commission, sued the auditor and said our complaints are are confidential and you can't see them. the The case took about three years before we were able to actually have the audit move forward. We had to go and request that the budget be cut, or we actually asked for them not to be funded. But they decided both the Senate and the Assembly said – we're going to cut the budget and by five hundred thousand, which is you know a chunk of their income there for that department. And at that time, they were able to get them to settle the court case and do the audit. And the audit came back; it was pretty scathing. Uh, the auditor came back, and it was something that brought attention to how bad our court systems are. And even though the family court advocates went and took this issue to the state. They, of course, reviewed all the courts because the Commission on Judicial Performance reviews all the courts. And at this time, we have not had any results of what's going to come out of that. And the audit was released in when, when was April.
0: When, when was that completed? In April, you said?
1: In April. So in okay. June, we had a meeting uh, with the JLAC, Uh, the State Auditor and the Commission on Judicial Performance, the Center for Public Law Interest, and California Judges were able to go, and the public, in June, to give comment. And basically they said, the, the auditor said they need to improve the quality of the investigations. They need to amend the Constitution to to have fair judges and increase public control of judicial discipline. They want the courts, require the courts to publicly post information about the CJP. And it concluded the CJP did not thoroughly investigate one third of the complaints they reviewed. Which is pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. Uh, That the CJP was missing key steps in the investigation. Uh, It was amazing the way they were not allowing people, barring people from entry into the court, not calling people in the investigation. They didn't even interview people. And, I mean, they were ignoring so much. They Mm -hmm. failed to detect warnings of ongoing misconduct. They showed one case where it had multiple complaints, eight complaints on one judge, but they weren't looking at history. They weren't looking at a pattern. They would just look on one-offs. And then of course, as I said, most of them were dismissed.
0: It's hmm. Amazing. That's amazing. And what's shocking most, I think, is that do you really think this one in California is the only one that's doing that? <laughs> <I suspect.
1: laughs> that's pretty typical. Well, what we see from Joan Meyer's study uh, that she just released the full data for that uh, week or the full study, I should say, I think. I think we can say that this is happening across the nation, and I think you and I are both aware that this is happening in Australia, in England, around the world. And it's the Me Too movement has definitely helped us shift this. But as I like to say, home is the last place people like to think this happens, but it's the first place that needs to be safe. Yeah. Well, and,
0: you know, the, the, I think so much of the problem that we're seeing with the court system is because as you started out the conversation saying, there's no accountability. If a judge does something, there's only one place that you, you think is reprehensible or incorrect or even illegal. You go to that commission. I'm not aware of any other recourse for you. And if those commissions are not operating in the interest of the consumer, then you've got nobody. You've got no accountability, um, no place that's going to keep the judges in line. Um, And I wanted to also ask, do you think that some of this behavior is just good old-fashioned patriarchy and
1: sexism? Definitely, definitely. Uh, that is definitely plays a key role. And we, we see a lot of women judges who do the same thing. And what we heard from Deanne Salcedo is if you don't play the game of the patriarchy judges who were there prior to them arriving, um, you're not going to stay. Yeah. Well, and so I've heard
0: anecdotally, I've not seen any studies. I'd love to see a study. There's a couple of of uh, um, studies, authors that I've had on show that have studied women judges in particular, um, but never with exactly the same uh, approach of are the women judges doing this kind of behavior of, of awarding children's custody to abusive parents? Are the women judges doing it more than the men judges? I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, I've heard several people say that anecdotally it seems that way, um, but I, I've not
1: seen any study where anybody actually investigated that. Have you? No, and I think that's a good question. And of course, I'd like to bring up, we do have some good judges, right? There are some okay. a handful of good judges out there, and we appreciate the good work that they do. And yet we have so many judges who aren't doing what's right. And when you talked about accountability, we've also been able to, with other advocates, go to the board of psychology, the board of behavioral science, because, as you know, in these cases that are that can last years, um, what happens is is the judges don't have time to hear everything, so they order a 7:30 evaluation or a, an evaluation of the family, um, and the a family has to go and speak with these experts who usually have a degree in psychology, have a license. And if you go to that licensing board, the numbers are the same. We're currently working with the board of psychology in California. Mm -hmm. And I'm concerned that I'm concerned they're trying to minimize what they're doing or we're in the process of bringing the awareness to them, and they're trying to say we're working on it. And I, I, I haven't been um, reassured enough that they actually are. I think they're trying to they, do... Psychologists
0: and evaluators.
1: That's who the, you're talking about at The point? Board of Psychology. The Board of Psychology okay. is trying to address the issues that we have brought forward. And we've been going to the board of psychology meetings for years and bringing up Mm -hmm. the fact that very valid reports are being dismissed, much like with the commission on judicial performance. And they know that we were able to get the JLAC to approve the audit for the commission on judicial performance. And I think, I think they're trying to avoid that. And I think there's people on their board who wants to do what's right, but, we're at a precipice of change and people there are individuals who want to do what's right but the organization is so ingrained in what's doing um what's the cover-up i mean we can look at hollywood and of course rowan farrow um, farrow's book just came out and jody Cantor at megan chewy they just released their book and those three are the people who we're able to talk about what happened with Harvey Weinstein and the culture to dismiss abuse in Hollywood. And that, mm-hmm. you know, entertainment Hollywood, we can, we, can, we can talk about a lot of people who, um, you know, the Boy Scouts, the Catholic Church, um, Jerry Sandusky, we can mm-hmm. look at all those cases. And we have a culture that dismisses abuse. Uh, there is a professor out of Oregon who's currently working at Stanford University, who came up with <clears throat> excuse me the term Darvo. Are you familiar with that? Yes.
0: Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah, so absolutely. Gen- Jennifer... As a matter
0: of fact, I, I think... okay. What, what's her name? Because I think she's been on the show actually.
1: Oh, great, Jennifer Freid. So she um, I'm trying is. To She is an amazing woman who came up with this term, DARVO, defend, attack, reverse, victim, offender. She also coined the term institutional betrayal. And that's what this is. When we're talking about unaccountability, this is institutional betrayal. And she has recently come up with a term called institutional courage. And this institutional courage is having the courage to, to shift the culture, having the courage to stand up, having the courage to say this is unacceptable, and having the courage to step out of that. I think one of the greatest to movies, do. And, and especially, especially it's hard to when do. there are
0: people who are all going through this, I mean, they're being traumatized by this, and then to expect them to be the ones to have the, the courage and the stamina to go up against these systems. I mean, it's
1: unreal. It's so I think unrealistic. it's actually. Go ahead. I think the courage is supposed to be coming from the institutions, So it's the institutions who are supposed to be self-reflective and look at themselves and saying, what are we really doing to support a victim coming in and being heard? And okay. she has oh, 10 steps I'm that she's thinking. put together. Let me, uh-huh. let me go through these because these are pretty powerful. Okay. So an, in, so a, so an institution to, to shift, because we know there's good people in every institution, but when the institution itself is ingrained in a process that doesn't allow the victim to be heard and they're dismissed, you need to sit back and um, review what you're doing first off are you complying with criminal and civil orders and codes are you responding sensitively sensitively to the victim's disclosure right because immediately people get defensive right i mean we just saw recently with abc might have had a harvey weinstein story or sorry jeffrey epstein story three years ago And now how is ABC dealing with that, right?
0: So it's everyone's
1: really realizing everyone's done something wrong in the past. And we need to just say, we need to hold people accountable, but we also need to say, this is how you have to move forward. So her suggestion is the third suggestion is to bear witness, be accountable and apologize. And this is pretty hard for people to do. And Mm -hmm. it's where we need to go. We need to learn to cherish the whistleblower, and we need to allow for more whistleblowers to come forward. They need to do a self-study of where they're at, and they need to conduct surveys, anonymous surveys. They need to make sure their leadership is educated about research on sexual violence and related trauma. Be transparent about data and policy. They need to use the power of the company to address this societal issue. So if you're a movie company, you need to make movies about build awareness and educate so people can come forward. And I think that is the beauty of the Me Too movement. People are realizing for the first time that they're not the ones who should be, hold any shame. It's mm-hmm. the people, the perpetrators who are holding that. So that's fabulous. And her tenth and most important, one of the most important um, steps that she has for this is fund step nine, one through nine. And that goes without saying. Without funding, we're not going to get anything. The Time's yeah. Up movement received a lot of funding so they can go in and help these wom- women who are being abused but don't have the resources. And we, we keep going back to these cases of why is abuse being dismissed and usually not only can the father go into court and look put together, he's also the one with more money. Yep. And money has always talked Oh,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and the other factor, you know, when I was having my exchange with the Colorado judge, I thought, you know, you're you're you have two people there. One that she the judge referred to as put together and in control. Well, yeah, that's what they do. And then one who's right. frantic. Do you think that possibly the reason that she's frantic is because she has she knows this man gets what he wants at all costs, or at least does everything he can to get what he wants at all costs, and that he's going after her children i mean what woman wouldn't be frantic and terrified and yet by exhibiting that if person, she's not frantic something's it. wrong exactly right but yet by we exhibiting need everyone that to be
1: right everyone if they're not if they're not concerned about this there's a problem and mm-hmm. and that is the issue that we have to understand that people who come forward recognize there's no, there's no special way. We have stories of people who said they went and told their pediatricians, and the pediatrician judged them by the way they actually said it. I mean, there's no proper way to disclose abuse. You shouldn't be judged if you sound very um, um, scared. You shouldn't be um, mm-hmm. if you're crying or if you're completely um, able to hold it all together and sound very um, factual. None of those mean that it's false. And that's what people need to learn. And dismissing abuse, I mean, I think most of us have listened and heard the impact statements from all the victims of Larry Nassar. And you could see the trauma in them. You can see what they've gone through. You can look at their families. I mean, there was one man and wife who did not believe their daughter. Their daughter ended up... She was old enough to move away, and when her father found out that Larry Nasser actually did this to her and everyone else, he killed himself. I mean that we, I think people have such a hard time believing this because it's, it's very difficult to believe. It's painful to believe. Number one, it's someone who is respected. You have to, a respected person would never do that. And you have to reverse that. How could that happen? I, don't, I can't bring myself to believe that because I know all the good. The other thing is it's easier to dismiss a woman, as, as our culture has taught us for centuries. Dismissing women is what we, we do well, right, as a society. Oh, yeah. oh she's just crazy. Yeah, she's delusional. She told the kids this.
0: Are, yeah.
1: oh, oh, we're, we're, women are always dismissed. Right. So that actually is easier for people culturally to do is to dismiss the woman uh, because, because we've been almost trained to do that, to question her. Mm -hmm. We don't question the man, we question the woman. And, and we, I will say we definitely have some men who are protective parents. Um, Obviously most of most of the protective parents are women. And that's, that just goes back to what, you know, you said is that, where does this stem from? And, you know, I say to people who watch those Larry Nassar impact statements, I say, you know, none of those girls were ordered into custody with him. And because everybody can relate to how painful it was to watch these girls and to know how horrific that was, and they would never want that to happen to another human being again. But when you add that caveat that he was never able to, to go in their room at nighttime and molest them. He was never able to control them financially. He was never able to control their future. He was never. And he
0: was never. He was had never. Bond. He never had the trust that a parent, yeah. that a child naturally has for their parent to be, to violate. Right. I mean, it's just that. I mean, there's just nothing like that, you know.
1: Right. So we see many cases of the trust on people, you know, we talk about trauma bonding that you people say, how can you, how can someone like someone who's abusing them? And the truth is sometimes they don't. And that's when we get caught up with, you know, Oh, she's alienating them from the father. It's like, hello, uh, people don't like abuse, but if you have to go into a protective space, where you have to play the abuser's game to survive, then that's what they do to survive because we're not, we're not protecting them. Our society does not protect them. We are telling these kids, you're on your own. So for a child to become trauma bonded, that's their safest space for many children. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and if they have to go there because we're not taking care of them, shame on us. Shame on us. Hmm. Shame on our society yeah. for not taking care of these children.
0: Let's get back to the California Protective Parents
1: Association. Um, it was started what year? When was it started? So about 22 years ago now. And Connie was at the home for a long time. And as a protective parent, I became involved with the organization. And so two years ago, she started um, just slowly retiring. And this is an organization she did not just want to re- Retire and say goodbye to it's. It's been a lifeline for people in California, and also, as you're probably aware, uh, California Protective Parents Association and other advocates, including Center for Judicial Excellence and Joan Meyer, came together, and we went to we went to Congress and said we need legislation. And we were able to get the first legislation in the House of Representatives passed in 30 years for child safety. And now we're asking people to bring that back to the states. So even though we are based in California and we help people here and we are definitely understand the laws here better than other states, we are asking other states to come together. And, and we do work with people in other states to build this issue just as is in California. And so,, no. if everyone can work on their local level, um, their county level, work on their state level, and you know together come together as for as a nation, i think I think we're we're beginning to see some change. We're beginning to see the awareness I, I believe you have to have awareness of the situation and then an acceptance of that, because I've been on my county task force to change child sexual abuse and after a year and a half people are finally accepting it what i'm saying they were hearing it i was telling Mm -hmm. them i was building the awareness but they did not accept it for over a year Mm -hmm. and that takes time and we're in that acceptance process and when you have acceptance then you can bring change so Mm -hmm. some people are further along than others Yeah, we
0: were, we were talking about that earlier, that the reluctance to on the part of everyone to understand or believe that something like this is going on. Um, I mean, we, right. we see that just in the whole domestic violence area, let alone the whole court and custody area. Um, people just, if it's not within your experience, if it's not something that you would do, you just don't understand how it could happen. Um, and so you tend to not to think that well, obviously it couldn't have happened. this must be an exaggeration, or this must be you know uh, somebody has a wild hair, you know whatever, or she just wants to get back at him or you know pick your excuse if most and most people do not have the experience of being abusers or being abused, most people don't heck of a lot of people do um so what the regular people that don't have that experience in their their backgrounds do is to just kind of disregard, you know, the whole thing, to think it just can't possibly be. I remember years ago, there was, uh, I moved to a new community with my husband, who was a physician, and we were at a cocktail party, and one of the physicians had just been found guilty of sexually abusing his teenage daughter in two separate counties because one of the counties is where his office was, and in the other county is where he resided. And so he was found guilty in both counties, two separate actions. And the cocktail party talk was, oh, I've worked with him for years. I can't believe he did it. You know, that girl never did like him. And I thought, well, duh, you know, (laughs) if he was abusing her. And and I was thinking, do you have any idea how hard it is to get to get one conviction against these guys, let alone two, they had no concept. Well, we've so seen the rain, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we see, so it, the numbers, right? see the rain numbers, Pe- right? Yeah, exactly. People can't grasp it. They just can't grasp it. And I used to resent that. I used to think, what's the matter with you? How can you be so dismissive? But now I think it's a form of self-protection, you know, Um Right. If if I just can't admit that it happens to you, if I admit that it happens to you or in your house, then I have to face the possibility that it could happen to me
1: as well. You're going to open the floodgates. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think um, we saw a lot. The shift, I think that's beautiful that we're seeing is the case, the Stanford rape case. Obviously this is not a family court matter, but this these are the situations we deal with when um, someone's been sexually abused. How does how are you treated in the court system? It's a reabuse through the court system. So if you've survived this, I mean, as a protective parent, many people said, just pretend it's not happening and take fifty percent custody and go. If you go to court, you're going to lose all your money. If you report this, you're going to lose custody. And those things, those are that's still happening. Lawyers and Joan Meyer will tell you, you have to give the facts to clients. Her study is what's going to help shift this because until you hear the stories and until you hear the facts of the actual data, we can't bring change. One story for people is a one off. Kathleen Russell has put together these last 11 years a database of children who were murdered by parents in these situations. And it's so sad to see this list of over 700 children murdered. And these, most of them were preventable, right? I mean, this is, this is where we're at, is that with these children being murdered, when you have one child murdered, you're like, well, that happens, and he's crazy, and, and this is a tragic situation. When you put all of this together and see this is a crisis, I mean, California Mm -hmm. realizes the crisis that's happening with ACEs to the point where we hired the first ever Surgeon General of California as Dr. Nadine Burke Harris, who has become an ACE expert. She's a pediatrician who saw what was happening to these children and said, okay, we need to change this. Why is this happening to our children? And we need to stop it. You know, her book Mm -hmm. is The Deepest Well. It's like cut off the well. Don't keep. Giving these people the same water and expecting them to get better, right? That's where yeah. we need to go. Yeah. You know, stop the band aid treatment. Tell me a little bit more
0: about the California Protective Parents. What, uh, I mean, we talked obviously about the court things, and that's your primary focus, but you've also mentioned that you've been involved in some studies. What
1: other things
0: is the organization doing?
1: So our whole mission is to educate, support, and advocate. So um, we're a very small organization, so we can't do as much as we want based on funding. I mean, the funding for these, for these organizations is very small and limited, but it's the grassroots. If you look at who was able to get the first ever audit for the Commission on Judicial Performance, it was three small grassroots organizations, and that's amazing that's amazing, mm-hmm. and that's what people need to realize is that you can be small and mighty. So what we do is we we go to Sacramento, we talk to the, the legislators, and we tell them what is happening. We work with them on, like, right now, it's the time that they're going to prepare of what they're going to present next year to put on the floor. It's like, what do we need to keep continuing moving forward? We have Piki's resolution, which is... Um, an outtake of house congress seventy two which passed in the House for child safety as a first priority in custody adjudication, and we're keeping oh, wow. moving oh, forward
0: stop, stop, stop. Tell me more about that how who started that how did that how
1: long what's the the progress of that How did you get to that point so with Pey's resolution, we basically took these cases to the California Capitol and and started talking to people. And we decided to go visit the assembly woman who had a murder happen in her county. So Anna Estevez is a mother down in LA who was asking for protection of her child. She was getting a divorce and she realized that her child was coming back and saying he didn't feel safe with his dad, that he was, being pinched his dad was saying bad things about him he was talking about people getting hurt he was very scared to be with him and he asked not to be with his father Uh, and a lot came out about his father afterwards but of course the courts dismissed it and he was able to get custody it was a famous case because he went to disneyland with his son one night or one day and that took a picture with mickey smiling the three of them and next thing you know, he wakes up, supposedly, in a car by himself saying, someone drugged me, someone stole my boy. Um, and it took 72 days to find his boy dead in the woods where he just laid him against a tree to die after he suffocated him in the back of the car post the Disney visit that night. And that poor mother had to go through 72 days of not knowing where her son was. And so we brought this case to the legislator, Blanca Rubio, who is this amazing woman in California who said, I'm going to stand up for this. I'm going to help you. And the father in this case was convicted of murder. And the mother, Anna Estevez, was this past year a woman of the year for California for her district. She is someone who started saying, how can I bring change? She helped us by going to Washington, D.C. and telling her story of what happened. And this is a woman within a year of her son being murdered is in D.C. talking to congressmen and women to tell them of why we need this child safety resolution. So with Piki's mm-hmm. resolution, it actually ended up passing in California before the federal resolution. Um, So these were both last year, and um, we were amazed by that. We're also looking at laws that are on the books and seeing what we can do. You mentioned the survey that we worked with. Um, It's an older survey, so we're looking at updating that right now. We have our website, caprotectiveparents.org, where people can go and see the steps. They can read all the research. They can watch videos. They can see which books we recommend. Um, obviously, we are not lawyers, but we do help with steps, make them aware of laws that they can see that should be important to them, so they can. Um, our last study showed that 27% of women who go to court end up um, being becoming bankrupt, um, which is so sad. Uh, And they spend over, I like to say they spend 100%, but it's really an average of $100,000. And if you have more than that, you're going to spend more than that. But that's just the average that we found that people spend on these cases. And we were able to see that the people who are going to court end up without a lawyer. The men usually Mm -hmm. have a lawyer and the women do not. So part of our task is to, to arm them with tools that they can go into court and, and say, I know about these resolutions. I know about this law that says I have a right for my child to speak in court. I know about what my rights are as in an evaluation. And, the, you know, it's very hard to bring change. There is a 730 evaluation that happens that should happen if there is suspected child sexual abuse. Well, what we see in courts is when 730 evaluations are done by these evaluators that, of course, many times report false information to the courts. And the courts, because of the time allowed, they take these reports from an evaluator, excuse me, and they almost rubber stamp them. So when you have an evaluator going in with these documents and you have someone who's pro per because they can't afford an attorney anymore they're able to say what you know what should be on the 730 evaluation and if it's not they can bring that up in court we just were able to after 15 years of pushing to get a checklist for the 730 evaluation law into the courts to say, make sure they did everything. Don't accept a 730 evaluation if they didn't check all the boxes of what it's required by law. So when I mm-hmm. talked about institutional courage, one of the first things is follow the law. It's like many times the laws are there, but they're not being followed. And that's part of the institutional betrayal. Sometimes people say we need a law for this. It's, it's like, well, many times we already have a law. It needs to be followed. I mean, why do we have to have a, a resolution that says you need to put child safety as a first priority, right? But we need to because it's not happening. You would,
0: you would think that that would be naturally, you know, what they would be doing, but I know that it's not. Um, somebody explained it to me once that think of your children as the coffee table or grandma's china. When you go through divorce, it's a matter of who's going to own it.
1: yeah and it should you know we are definitely not involved with um, how a divorce in two healthy adults deal with their children. We deal with a percentage of people who are abusive to their children and when and mm-hmm. and if you look at many divorces, this is you know we don't really know the real numbers. We know that less than ten percent are the cases we deal with, but they may be higher with with those that don't disclose abuse because they know that they're never, maybe lose custody of their children and they won't see their children. And we know there mm-hmm. are people who live that way. They have taken that option to know their child's living with abuse so they can have 50% at least. Yeah. And that, we should not be doing that as a society. So we help people know what to do. We put on, uh, we put on over 20 conferences, mainly in California. We just did a conference with Center for Judicial Excellence for the first time down in Santa Monica, which was fabulous. We were able to bring together um, Deanne Salcedo as a retired judge to speak as an expert to what's happening in the courts. We brought together Eve Sheedy, who works with with the in Los Angeles with these cases for the county. We brought together these children who have aged out of the courts to hear about what it was like for them and to hear how their abuse was dismissed. And they, many of them were forced to go to what's called reunification camps and they were forced to be with that parent who is abusive to them. And they are told you will never see your other parent if you don't go back with the, well, they don't say the abusive parent. Um, We have people who are taking advantage Of situations of children I mean they are they are building business models to lie and make money and hurt a child and when these experts do that when they take money and dismiss child sexual abuse that is trafficking a child and people are not realizing what an industry this is it's not a cottage industry divorce is a 50 billion dollar industry and and what are we doing to protect these children, right? So conti- we're continuing to raise the awareness. I'm so grateful for this time with you, Heather, to, to keep telling the story until someone hears it. And it, I think you have to hear it for so long. It's like when you hear something bad about you, you believe it right away. When you hear, to hear something good, you have to hear it multiple times, over 10 times to believe it, right? Yeah. And and we are, we are those people. It's more than 10 times we have to say it because we are changing a culture that dismisses abuse. And we are shifting. To, we're asking people to look at something that's not pretty. We're asking people to look at something that is so disturbing, yet it's breaking our children. It's, it's, it's hurting our future. It's not allowing people to live as they as we all want them to, and as our laws really protect them. In the California Constitution, they have rights, and these human and, and rights are being ignored. They have a right to safety, and we, and have, we, right we to have to safety. stop looking. And
0: it's our responsibilities as adults to make sure they have safety. Um, I, you know, I mean, yes. I, and it's all of our responsibilities, not just the ones that are fighting over custody, not just the ones who are actually in the court system. But all of us need to do everything that we can to make sure that safety is always the first consideration when we make decisions about children, whoever's making those decisions. And I think that the California Protective Parents group has done a lot to bring that to the forefront. Is everyone with your group a survivor or a protected parent? Or do you have people no who
1: are just interested in the not future? everyone we okay. have people who are just um, we have definitely people who are survivors of this, and we have people who work in the field who say this is what's happening in the field is not right, so they see the problems and they need to stand up so our board I would say has a good background for this and Mm -hmm. and really the motivation to keep going even without funding i mean this organization operates on a shoestring and it's people do it because we know that we can't allow this to go on Yeah, it's
0: it's an astonishing situation with all the studies that are coming out i hope that you're right that we are at a turning point in this issue. I I really hope that you're right Um, because it just had something has to change. I mean, we're looking at what, at least 25 years of children who have gone through this, who've grown up, who have suffered for the rest of their lives and will continue to suffer because of these situations. And I understand the difficulty of being a judge, you you know, looking at both parties without trying to, make a prejudgment before you see the paperwork and all that kind of stuff. But what I don't understand is once they see the paperwork, to then rely on those old stereotypes of, oh, well, she looks frantic, and, oh, well, she doesn't look like she can even organize her own life, let alone that of her children, which is what that judge said to me. Um, you know, to, to follow back on something like that, some sort of a, I, I, I don't understand it. I don't understand how people can do it, especially well-educated people. And I think most judges are well-educated, um, at least ostensibly, you know. So it's a huge mm-hmm. issue. I think it's a huge issue. Um, I
1: also... Yeah, have and an that's why we technology. worked... No, go uh, ahead. Oh, I was going to say, that's why we're working towards accountability. And that goes with mandate reporters. We want them to be accountable. And and we're also seeing... Um, That we are not holding people accountable for perjury. So, like what just what you said right then, Heather, is that people go in and they see, you know, the he said, she said. When the he said is all false statements, why are we not holding people accountable to that?
0: Yeah. Well, and why aren't we as judges, as decision makers, educating ourselves about all aspects of this, not just the aspect that fits our predispositions or our stereotypes. Um, that's the hard thing to understand. But it's also extremely difficult to do anything with judges. So that's why it's kind of exciting that you've had some impact on the judicial review uh, process in California. So are you also advising other states and other uh, organizations on how to go about it and how you did it?
1: Well, on our website, we kind of put together a explanation of how we asked for this so other states can do that as well if they have the issue, same issues we do. And yeah. we definitely believe in sharing the information of how to go about doing this and how to become an advocate yourself. And just like you said, everyone needs to stand up because everyone works with someone who's been affected by this directly or indirectly and mm-hmm. and, and making our nation healthier it starts by protecting our children.
0: Well, and making our, our country and our families healthier long-term, not just today. But these kids are going to grow up, right. and as you mentioned with the ACE study, they're carrying this stuff with them. And that's kind of shameful, um, that any child should have to carry this kind of an experience into its own adulthood. You know, I'm looking at the, the time, and I'm going, oh, my gosh, where did our time go? I've really enjoyed talking with you and talking about the California Protective Parents Association. Is it the association or the organization?
1: Association. Am I saying it correctly?
0: Okay. Yes, the so California, California Protective Parents, Parents association. association. Right, okay, California Protective Parents Association. And if you Google that, you can get to the website and find all sorts of really helpful information, whether you're going through this kind of experience personally or whether you just want to become more knowledgeable about what's happening, and I would, I would recommend that. Catherine, thank you so much for being with us, and thank you for listening to three Three Women.